Hello, 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 cheeky, hey. cheeky natives. What to do, what to do, what to do. So I'm always so excited when we record podcasts because I feel like it's just an intimate conversation. But I'm so glad that you um, will get to hear our thoughts and hear our laughter, just our conversations. And firstly, thank you so much for continuing to support us and for continuing to listen to us. Uh, we really appreciate it. How are you doing, Alma? How you do? How you do? I'm okay. Um, I'm really excited to have read such a beautiful book. And I was actually complaining earlier this day that, you know, I've just read my first bad book of the year. <laughs> and I know that it seems extra bad because I read this book straight after reading Bookie's book. <laughs> so um, I'm just going to leave it into, in the air and, and say that this just is one of my favorite books this year. So um, today we have the wonderful privilege of being in conversation with the author of An Ordinary Wonder. Um, and I will let Alma just read um, the bio and then we will get straight into the conversation to welcome Bookie. Okay, I am so excited. I have the supreme pleasure of introducing Buki Papilo, who is Nigerian-born and who studied law at Howard University in the UK and then obtained her MFA in creative writing from Lesley University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She has received numerous writing scholarships and awards and is a Vona alumnus. She has uh, been at various times an events organizer, travel advisor, librarian and chef, and her work has appeared in numerous publications. She currently lives in Boston, USA, and she is the author of An Ordinary Wonder. Such I want to start by saying, and I've said this before, there is nothing ordinary about this wonder. Welcome, Buki, to the Chikinators. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you. And I'm so glad that you love an ordinary wonder. I think love is an understatement. I think we really, really <laughs> like are astounded by just how much the book achieves and how like tender and extremely moving it is. At least for me, I think like it was a book that I started and I thought, oh my gosh, it's 300 pages. Am I going to be able to finish this in the time that it requires me to finish it? But I literally spent like half a, a, a day reading the last 200 pages of this book because it was that juicy. And I just wanted to know what happens next, what happens next, what happens next. Yep. To begin uh, the question um, or the conversation, Buki, I think the first question is, this is such an important story to tell, uh, particularly in contemporary literature. And we wanted to find out from you, why was it important to tell the story? Or perhaps where did the story meet you? Mm, I love that, I, that question, where did the story meet me? Um, the story met me at a point in my life when I was asking um, all sorts of interesting questions about life, about myself, because I am a, a transplanted um, Nigerian living in the United States who used to live in the UK. So um, I just finished my, I was finishing my MFA at the time and um, I was studying my own culture. I was doing um, a course studying my own culture, Nigerian culture, which was for me different from actually living it, which I had lived um, my Nigerian culture for 20 something odd years of my life um, because I didn't leave Nigeria till I was in my early 20s. And so um, so this sort of retrospective looking back and actually diving into my own culture brought up so many things about my own life, about my past, about my country, 
about the way we think about about certain concepts, concepts, for example, like gender. And so doing all of that, while doing all of that, I heard this clear voice telling me this story, this astounding story. And I was like, oh, wait, I need to pay attention to this. This is so vital. And then it became a, a sort of a, 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 an unlayering, um, if you like, of all of the different aspects of, um, of, of my life and of being Yoruba and, and, and of my gender and the way that we, um, we perceive um, gender variance in, in, in my country and in, in Nigeria and in many other countries. And um, so all of these came together to, um, to, to intersect at a point where also having been not so long ago transplanted to the United States from, um, from the UK, I had so many questions about life, about who a person really is and, and how do you become who you are in the face of, um, in the face of every, anything else that tells you who you are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And um, it was about the sort of challenges that arise when you are looking for a place where you can belong. So mm-hmm. that was where this book met me. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I love that. I- I love this answer, Vicky. You know, I think we just started the podcast on such a great note because I want to talk about the exploration that you do in this book, right? And the exploration of becoming, of becoming and belonging, are intricately linked. And the character in this book leaves; she leaves, or Tolerant leaves home in order to become. So she's displaced in order to become. And so there's a relationship that I want us to talk about uh, between the becoming and the displacements, the becoming, the belonging and the displacement and why geography features in the way that it does. Right. So, um, yes, uh, th- that is so interesting. You put it so, so simply. You, you, it's, it's really amazing how you put your finger directly on, on exactly what it is about. That The whole idea of having to leave um, one place, the place where, um, I mean, I, ideally we would all be born exactly where we belong, right? We would all be born exactly in the places that suit us most. You know, someone who really loves the cold would find themselves born in Scandinavia and in some Scandinavian country, you know, or someone who really loves the heat would be born somewhere in the, in, in the Sahara and, and so on and so forth. And someone who, for example, um, I come from a, 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 a culture where we're very gregarious. We are, I mean, Nigerians can talk the whole day long. They will gather. There is nothing as important as everyone gathering in one place and talking and telling stories. And so it's called having Oyaya. This is really important to have that thing called Oyaya, which is exuberance and extroversion. Now, um, bringing this back sort of to myself, I am a complete and utter introvert. So being born into a culture where you had to be so extroverted, for me, it was so hard in so many ways. And I had to figure out, okay, I need to find a place where I can be more the self that is real to me. And so there is this whole, so that is on a very micro, on a very um, lower level than say, trying to find a place where you can belong because you are so persecuted for being born the way you are as um, autolories. And so, um, so it's that exploration. So I think that that sort of springs 
in a way from my own understanding of what it is in, in so many ways. And that is such a, my, they, I mean, there's so much more layers to that and to my own personal story. But um, it, it, it's that sort of exploration of having to leave everything that is familiar to you. Um, there is a point in the book where um, Otto has to um, leave home. And, um, and this comes fairly early on where, um, you know, um, Lori concludes that, okay, the only way that I can sort of find my way towards becoming Lori is for me to leave this home. And yet it isn't easy because home is where, you know, your loved ones are, your familiar ones are, even if those familiar ones are the ones treating you wrong, they are still the people you are most familiar with. They are still the people you've grown up with. I mean, you know, right to the point where it's Otto's mother. You know, there is nothing as much that says home like mother. So it is this whole thing of having to be displaced, um, whether it is from your home or from the side of your loved ones or from the country where you were born into and whose cultures in many ways you are attuned to, but in also other ways, knowing that you will thrive possibly better elsewhere because that is where you can best be your full self. So all of those are the themes that I do explore in An Ordinary Wonder. We're taking a short break. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. I like the, um, you know, the question around displacement right and 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 becoming um and i think in many ways unbecoming but i wanted to speak a little bit about like otto's initial displacement which is leaving home in order to go to a, a boarding school and just like some of the uncomfortability that comes with that right so it isn't a decision of hey i'm leaving because i'm going to do better for myself right but it's leaving because I know that I'm causing some form of chaos in this home and I'm leaving in order for there to be normalcy in the home. And I wondered about that exploration of like, you know, I think for me, the coming of age story and just the hardship that Otto goes through is hard for me because I'm like, you're, you're young and you have to go through all of this and you need to make grown up decisions about like the only way that, good can be sustained in this home, no, no matter what good may look like, I need to leave. And I wanted to speak about that, just the, the, the displacement that Otto feels in the family setting itself and leaving as a way of further displacing themselves away from the family. Ah, that is so, um, yeah, that, that goes really deep. Um, yes, um, so that came to me writing the story I mean it was pretty much straight away that I um that I understood that um Otto being so young already understood that um in so many ways um that 
you know, t- took on that guilt again. So this is this is also a question of guilt and the guilt that little children can sometimes take on because they interpret things um, how they interpret things differently. You know, um, sometimes adults think children don't hear what is going on around them, but they know so much more than the adults um, realize they know. The problem, though, is that um, is that children then go ahead and interpret, put their own interpretations on what they hear, and the interpretations that they put on what they hear is not always. Um, it, it could lead to um, some really difficult consequences. I'm thinking here about, um, uh, oh, I can't remember the title of this very, very popular novel, um, which was made into a movie where um, this young girl overhears something and then she thinks that it meant um, something else and it ends up in a young man being sent to jail. Um, whereas, you know, so, so there is that whole thing of, um, of being young and then um, having to deal with things that are so grown up that your interpretation can be a little bit um, different than what is intended. Except in this case, in Otto Loring's case, it is very much what is going on. It is very much what is going on that, um, that Otto's presence in the home is literally, um, uh, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's t- as soon as Otto was born, chaos came into the family. And chaos came into the family because this child was born intersex, and because at that time in um, in, in that time in Nigeria, it was not understood. Um, th- this was a complete anomaly. This was a complete shock to the parents. This um, led to their father abandoning them. This led to so right from the very beginning, there th- that resentment towards Otto was there um, from the parents. And then from the sister, just loving her, um, from Wura, just loving her twin sister, but at the same time trying having to fight that whole, um, that whole idea that, oh, if my brother, because um, that is her brother to her at that time, to everyone, because he's been raised, uh, because she's been raised, or he's been raised as a, as a boy, um, if only my brother would just be like normal boys, we would have a great family and I'd be happy. So there is that whole um, thing of these two ch- young children having to deal with um, grown-up issues and also um, that displacement of Otto then coming to the understanding that, okay, since I was born, I've been a source of chaos in the lives of my parents, in the life, in the life of my beloved sister. So if I remove myself, then they can be happy. And maybe somehow in the process of removing myself, I can also find happiness becoming who I really want to be. And I think that there's an important tension in the family that you explore. And and for me, it made me think about what it means or where is the the line, right, in in raising your children and also allowing them to be the version of themselves that you may not necessarily have had in mind or been comfortable with. And I think so much of that is a tension that you explore in the book because these parents obviously wanted a boy, right? And uh, also Lauren doesn't turn out to be the boy that they wanted. And so there is a tension between parents 
and their desires and potentially their projections over this child, but also the tension between allowing your child the fullest freedom to be themselves, even though it may be in direct opposition to what you want. And so I think that you explored that tension quite clearly in the book. And I wanted us to talk a little bit about some of your reflections around the the tension in parenting, right? Um, And what it means to raise your children outside of yourself and what you may have hoped for them. Ah, wow. Another deep and wide question. I love your questions. Um, So, yes, um, so that is an age-old thing, though, isn't it? Um, This idea of parents um, having children and thinking, expecting them to be, um, you know, some projections of themselves. And, um, of course, the best thing that a parent can do for their child is to say, well, um, here you are you this um, new interesting being that didn't exist before, that nothing like you has ever existed before in the entire history of, you know, ever since. And um, here you are, and what have you brought to the world? And how can I help you to shine and to use everything you've brought to the world to become your best self? That's what parents should be asking, right? Um, That's what their mindset should be when a child is born. But usually, well, the mindset is, um, well, we have a family farm. You know, my grandfather was a farmer. My great grandfather was a farmer. This farm has been in our family for generations. We know everything about farming yams. And here is, uh, here is my son. Well, you know, we're going to pass the farm on to you. But, oh, this son wants to be an artist instead. And there we go. Off, you know, away we go with the tension, with the disappointments, with all of that. So... There is always that tension in any family. I mean, um, and, and also there is this whole thing of um, personality as well. You know, um, I remember um, this person that I used to know, um, distant family friends, where this lady absolutely hated her mother-in-law so much. She could not stand her. They could not stand each other. She loved her daughter immensely, but the daughter looked the spitting image of her mother-in-law and actually had the very personality of her mother-in-law and they will clash so much. And this was, and these are the sort of things that we cannot control for, you know, we cannot have, we cannot go and have our children, you know, ordered from, you know, some central child ordering service and say, uh, this child has to be this tall, this child has to be this gender, this child has to um, behave in this way, not look like that person or act like this person. So there's all of that um, tension of Otto being born um, into this whole web of expectations, cultural expectations, family expectations, sibling expectations, and then finding that, and then and then everyone trying to sort of now say, okay, we're in this situation, but we need to mold you into what we expected, as opposed to um, embracing Otto exactly as she has arrived. And so many modern um, families struggle with that, especially with in, in, in terms of, you know, specifically gender, gender presentation, um, um, gender variance, um, whether it is trans or, 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 or uh, a boy um, being more firm, a, 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 a girl being more, um, being more um, 
male in her appearance, in her presentation, um, or, or, or masculine inclined, I should say. So there are all of these. And then what that says about us as, as, as human beings, as, as you know, that, that, that these things should actually make such a difference to our ability to accept and embrace and love our children just because they did not come out or they are not presenting in ways that we feel um, they should be in society. And then also how much of that comes from the parents themselves as individuals. For example, if all of those restrictions were removed from society and culture, if it was absolutely normal to present and be however you are, would the parents then not have an issue personally so these are all the questions that I explore. Okay, is so rich with wisdom, right? And just like how thoughtful you've written the book. Yeah, I wanted to speak yeah. a little bit about the secrets, right? I think that secrets also are such a central theme in the book, right? From auto secretly being Laurie, but also from the secrets that um, Otto's ma- grandmother hid, right? And how secrets sort of, also permeate the lives of these people and um and auto uh, you know also thinking about auto secret secret you know as being an intersex person and how this permeates her life throughout the book and i wanted to speak about the role of secrets particularly or what driving force it played in the story hmm. yes um so secrets i mean we all have them everyone has some skeleton as we say in our cupboard you know, everyone has that thing that would um, that would drive a person to um, well that if, if if it was exposed um, would be would create difficult situations. And um, secrets exist mostly because of shame in some ways, and family secrets are almost always around events and incidents that are considered shameful. Um, So in Otto's case, um, what has happened, of course, is that um, she's born into sex. One of the things that human beings have shame around the most is sex, sexuality. Anything to do with sex, sexuality, gender, there is a big um, possibility for shame to to happen. And so um, from time immemorial, having a child that is born intersex in, several, in, many, in many societies has been a quote-unquote shameful event. So um, for Otto and in 1980s Nigeria, um, 1990s Nigeria, it is um, an event where they don't even know where to turn. They do not, the, the, the parents do not know where to turn. The parents have no idea about um, what this is. And so they, the, the, their response is to hide. Their best, they feel that their best response is to hide. And so they inculcate that into Otolori that, you know, you are this anomaly. Um, if people heard about you or knew about you, it will be so shameful and it will be so horrible for you and you'll be so shameful and you'll be so horrible for all of us. And so going back to that and then taking that shame further, um, you know, there are all the secrets that all of the family are hiding. And all of those secrets are around this particular central um, event that they feel that is so shameful. 
And so, um, for example, um, I read an, I read an article not too long ago where um, some Afri- this 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 was in very recent times um, where some African midwives um, I, I can I'm trying to remember exactly which country now and I do not want to say um, the wrong country I I I think it might have been Kenya and um, and if it is not please forgive me um, I just cannot remember the exact country where they were interviewing real midwives and these midwives were confessing that when children were born intersex they would actually the parents would actually ask them to quietly um, kill these children and I want this you is just, not and this is um, it may have been Kenya but this is also happening in South Africa there has been a number of, of research um, of midwives you know um, saying that they you know they intersex infanticide is a thing right so i think like it's quite widespread even though we don't talk about it especially in on the continent yes yes exactly and so it is i mean this is the heaviness of this of of the, the size of the secret of how how this is regarded and how and this is partly also why i felt like this book just needed to be written and written very, very much from an African gaze, from an African perspective, from a Nigerian African perspective, because I didn't want it to be because all of because these 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 sorts of subjects around intersex, around gender, around um, around queerness are usually um, talked about in terms of oh, this is a Western thing, this is a this is a European thing. This is an American thing. This has nothing to do with us here. We don't, that, that is not even in the conversation here. But I very much wanted us to have that conversation in a way that wasn't being had from, um, from that Western gaze, that wasn't being had from, you know, from, so I wanted this to be brought to light and to stop being such a thing that it, such, such a, a secret thing. I wanted it to be something that was brought to light that is discussed openly. I wanted people to read about Otto's story and say, oh my God, this could be my neighbor. This could be my neighbor's daughter. This could be my child. How would I react? Would I, would I react like Otto's mother? Could I be better? And why should this be such a big deal anyway that, this, that, that my, if, if my child is born intersex? So that, that is, so, you know, just chipping away at that shame, that whole aspect of secrecy and shame. We're taking a short break. Have you ever wondered what the band ACDC has to do with the missing town of Dublin, Wisconsin? Or who gets to decide what music plays at the end of the world? Or whether or not the largest unsolved art heist in history was actually a cover for a different crime? Maybe you haven't wondered about these things, but that's okay. On 31, we dive into strange, true, but often lesser-known stories and the interesting theories that surround them. From space to sports, lost media to internet lore, 31 has something for everyone. Find 31 on your favorite podcast platform and dive into the why behind the weird with me, Quinn Lovecraft. 31, the why behind the weird. Oh, I love that we, we are speaking about secrets and, and shame, right? Because I think that the book really really just demonstrates the the pervasive power of of shame and of secrets and i wanted to speak a little bit about um i found this to be such an interesting part of the book to speak a little bit about 
bad mothers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but not just bad mothers. I wanted us to speak about bad, bad people as, a, as an idea, right? Because all of the characters in this book are very complex. Also, Lauren does things that are sometimes shameful, that are sometimes embarrassing, and that sometimes harm other people. So also, Lauren herself is not, she is not, an angel, you know, she's not the same, this perfect person that you can't relate to. And I think that you've gone out of your way to write these characters with a lot of complexity. And so I wanted to explore a little bit the idea of like characters just not being great, but still eliciting em- empathy out of people and why you felt that it was so important to write these characters in the way that you did. Because I find the idea of bad people to be, to be quite an intriguing one. Mm, yes <laughs> yeah um that, there is that thing about villains right you know you look at anybody who is villainous they you know nobody was born um nobody was born you know intending to do harm i think we you know everyone is born i think every every spirit comes into this world um with gifts and that and, and the, the whole reason why why we're here is to express our gifts, to share them with our fellow humans as we, you know, sort of escort each other to the other side. You know, it's like we're, we're all on a walk. We're having, we're, it's like, I, I picture this big road we're all on and we're all on this road, you know, walking and talking and sharing this and sharing that. And at the end, at, at the beginning point of that walk is where we're born. At the end point is where we die. And so we're just, you know, beside each other, walking each other home, essentially. That is why we are here. And um, so, but somewhere along the way, every, things happen. You know, people get thwarted. And sometimes getting your desires thwarted or getting your, your, your light sort of dimmed or, or, or in some way turned around is what makes people into, um, into bad people, if you, you know. No one was born bad. So, um, so I, I wanted that to reflect very much. So that, um, so I wanted for every person who has harmed someone else in this book as much as possible for us to, even if it is just a glimpse, to see who they might possibly have be, have been. Um, that that they possibly might have been someone else if this or that had not happened to derail their lives or if this or that had not happened to 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 knock them off that path that they were meant to be on um, in order to be a, a fully fulfilled and happy and thriving and good human being so um so I tried to make sure that 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 um complexity was in there um you know as much as for example Otto Lorraine's mother um you know she is she is um a, a really um, she's she's one of the worst mothers. I've had I've had people just um, write feedback to me or talk or, or tell people that have read the book and say, "Oh my God, that woman!" And 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 she isn't you know she isn't um, she's very much a fictional character and she's very much not a fictional character. She's a compendium of many, many, many women that I have experienced or, 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 or known, you know, whose experiences I have known growing up in Nigeria, where they became the way they became because of what had been imposed upon them themselves. 
So, and also um, Otto herself, um, you know, in striving to become who she wants to be, she wants certain things. And, you know, um, we all want things, you know, it, it, to, to not want things is to be dead. You know, we are, we are our desires in many ways. And the whole reason in many ways, you know, our, 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 um, our striving towards life is also our striving towards our desires. By next year, I want this. I want to do this. I want to achieve this. So Otto very much wants to achieve many things. I mean, being the girl that she knows she is, is not the only thing that she wants to achieve in life, which is one of the major things because it is so fundamental. But she also wants to be a great artist. She wants to she wants to live her life. She wants to see places. She wants to experience things. She wants so. And but in all of this wanting, um, she's also coveting, because to want is also sometimes to covet. To covet what does not belong to you, and coveting what does not belong to you can lead to some really difficult situations and grim circumstances. And but we are all human, and sometimes we do covet what is not ours. And so, um, so in, in this regard, and in uh, in some other ways, um, Otto also Otto also falls short of being a perfect human being because that does not exist. There is no perfect human being, and um, so many other complex people who, in one way or the other, felt they failed themselves or or they failed somebody else. And of course, there is the um, the whole idea of, of of wanting to atone for um, sometimes for shortcomings and for failures. And um, so, yes, I try to really have everyone in this book be a complex character in order to show that, you know, many people are, people are made up of so much more and we are all our stories. We are made up of, this, of, the, of the, you know, the whole sum of our stories. I like that so much, right? Because I think there's yeah. also a lot of complicity in, 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 in the story, I feel like there was an opportunity for many of the parents in the very beginning of the book, especially the grandparents, to be on Otto's side. But they were just complacent in the violence, right? There's lots of violence in this book, and they just remain complacent. And I think in many instances, I want to also speak a little bit about redemption. I think that towards the end of the book, there is some redemption, whether it is because of age, but then there's also redemption at a point of death, right? You think about Otto's mm. maternal grandmother and you think about that woman only telling the truth because she was dying, right? She's um, trashy. And, and I, I wrestle with this idea of, of, of whether she was telling the truth because she was dying and she believed in some spiritual rhyme that she needed to release herself of this or whether she really was saying, I need to unburden myself and unburden these people of this problem that I've caused. And I wanted to know about that tension, Bookie. Okay, wait, sorry, Latakanano, before you go there, because I just think you raised something so important. Before you speak about redemption, there's a, there's a conversation about complicity. And I think we think of complicity, I think that when we think of community, sometimes we forget our responsibility towards each other, right? And I think of Gwendolyn Burke saying that we are each other's inheritance. And so when you speak about complicity, I am very interested in the ways in which Buki explores complicity in this book because some of it is very overt, right? Some of it is we can see parental neglect, we can see the ways in which 
Also, Lauren's father has not been who he needed to be or the ways in which his mother has not been who she's needed to be. But then there's a complicity from the church, right? And the ways in which the church will promote the ill treatment of people who are different because they don't feel it fit the narrative, right? Or you think about the school participating in the cover-up of sexual abuse that's occurred, you know, at the school. And so some of that is very overt, but some of that is also very covert. But in every single aspect that I'm speaking about, we have seen the complicity of, of the community. And so I want us to just touch on that because you've raised it before before we move on to um, the redemption and what and what redemption looks like. Because can there be redemption without acknowledgement of, of harm and responsibility? Oh wow, I love this. So yeah, so there is okay, so the whole um so the idea of um going so we will come back to um um the idea of the of, of the grandmother and how and then how in complicity and so and her and, and what happens you know with the death with her death and so on but yes let's start with this with complicity so yeah i love that quote that you gave um you know about our responsibility towards each other um and yes there is a lot of complicity here and that is always the thing, you know, we look at all the sexual abuse, um, um, you know, scandals coming up and all, all of these things being revealed now. And we, you know, especially, for example, in the Catholic Church. And we, we you know, it's like all of these people have been there. There are people who have known all along and they've kept quiet. And silence, that particular brand of silence is so very, very powerful and so damaging. And um, and it, it is, and, and in many ways, I think it's a lot of times it's because people feel there are people who feel, oh, I could say something, I could do something, but I am, I am just me. I'm just one person. I don't. I have so little power. If I start this, there's all this giant power arrayed against me. Who am I, little me, to go against this, you know, big institution, this massive church? And, um, and, and yes, it is always a risk. And no, it, all, it doesn't always um, turn out right for the person who is trying to, um, to expose um, bad things that are going on. So, but, but, so, but that's, the, that's the one of the questions that um, I sort of w- wanted to raise is, even if you are this little, even if you don't have that much power, it still makes a difference to in your own capacity in any way that you can to try and speak truth to that power. So looking at the question of the church that is complicit, um, there there is a lot of that unfortunately going on um, these days um, in many countries. um, And especially I I can speak specifically to Nigeria, that there is a lot that this whole idea of um, children being witches of child witchcraft, it it is so hideous and so horrible, and um, and there are so many churches that perpetuate that um, particular narrative, and um and and there are so many children that are suffering as a result of that narrative being perpetuated, and that is something that um I wanted very much for us to 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 see and to understand and I was hoping that people who have these sorts of ideas also will read this book and that they would have identified so strongly with Otto Lori that by that when they 
see the things that are being done um, to her in the name of, you know, the church being complicit in, 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 in this particular type of abuse of children. They will, be, they will be so shocked and they will look around and question their own beliefs because a lot of people in Nigeria still have these beliefs, still hold these particular beliefs. So I'm speaking specifically to Nigeria, but I know that this is widespread in many African countries and in many um, other parts of the world as well. So that was another thing that I wanted to, to explore, that, whole com that complexity from the church. And then the school these things happen in schools. I mean, oh my goodness, the things that happen to people in, in schools and are covered up and are quieted. Um, I remember a certain incident that happened when I was in university in Nigeria. And, um, and I will not, I went to, I went to um, well, I will not say in more detail because I don't want anyone to be in any way identified. But a young woman, um, was raped and she um she was so young i mean we, we i just started we just started university we were not we were, we were barely out of our teens at the time and um she had been she'd been to a party she'd been dropped off um she, she, she someone just put her in a taxi after they'd done whatever they wanted to do with her they put her in a taxi with her clothes torn and everything and sent and told and made the taxi bring her back to our dorms. And she, as soon as she walked in, it was clear what had happened to her and she wasn't even sober. So everyone knew what happened. And, but you know, did she get sympathy? Did she get kindness? No, everyone, because in, in that culture, to be a woman who has been raped, is, it carries enormous stigma. So anyone who has been raped shuts their mouth. They do not ever say a word about it ever. So this young woman um, ended up, um, because everyone was whispering about her, of course no one would date her now. Oh, she's, this has happened to her. She's, she's untouchable. No one wants to touch her. No one wants to be with her. I remember her coming into the dining um, hall and just screaming and crying. I mean, th this was the depth of her pain, screaming and crying. I was not raped. Nothing happened to me. This didn't happen to me. Stop spreading rumors about me. This didn't happen to me. And that is exactly the nature of the silence. Because A, no one was going to go after the, the people who raped her. Nobody was going to um, take her side. So the only thing she could do was now go and stand, stand there in public denying that this ever happened to her. This is the nature of the silence. And the university would not have done, well, they might have maybe opened some sort of investigation, but she would always have been the one who suffered for this particular incident. So that is the sort of complicity around which I wrote this book. That sort of silence, that sort of continual silence and complicity. And I wanted this book to sort of, to, to be a challenge to all of that. I like that so much because I think that we don't understand the depths of complicity and culture and how religion plays a role in how we are complicit. Um, but I think closely related with the idea of complicity is also the idea of redemption, right? Um, yeah. There's a lot of redemption that happens in the book for a number of people. Um, but my, my question really is, is it redemption because we are seeing the errors of our ways or is it because we believe in some higher power and we want to get into a heaven or wherever? Um, and now we are at the point of death. So what we're doing is we're saying, yo, 
I need to fix my life before I get to the other side, as the grandmother did in the story. This is, um, there is this whole thing about um, sometimes when people are dying, I actually read about that recently, and I wish again I could find that article. It is actually a medically recognized uh, thing that sometimes happens to people that when they are dying, there is this, they, there is this going, there is sifting through of the memory. So it's like it's it's almost it's like um it's like dummy it's like when when you know when cards are put on top of each other when that game where you stack some cards and then you touch them and then they all start falling um so it's 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 in a way when people are dying their memories flash through um it is like this flashing through of the memory where then this then they just stop because they are no longer in this present time they 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 are going back and forth in time. And so they're just talking. So sometimes it is that. And sometimes it is a need, like you said, to unburden, to just get things off of um, your chest, knowing that, you know, oh, I have done this harm. Because suddenly there are no more consequences. And because there are no more consequences because the dying person, um, in this case, you know, the grand Otto Lorraine's grandmother, that, you know, she's dying and she and she and all of a sudden there are no consequences. And she might be able also to put things right. So in this case, it's a choose your own. It's almost a choose your own adventure um, situation. It's like, um, I want the reader to come into this. And um, so, you know, you can pick, you know, whether you want it to be um, the grandmother finding some sort of redemption or whether you want it to be the sort of um, just a scientific medical explanation for a dying person whose um, brain is now sort of filtering through all of her memories and who is just talking because she's ta- she says a whole lot of things. And so, um, and I try to play with that sort of ambiguity in the, in the whole book. What is real? What is not real? What is scientific? What is imagined? So, um, so in that case, so in, in that sense, um, the, the, the redemption of the grandma, is it redemption? Is it actual conscious redemption or is this um, something that is um, just a a scientific event, um, a scientifically explicable event happening inside, you know, as as the neurons are firing in her dying brain. So um, I play with this sort of complexity um, quite a bit um, in, in in the whole book. I want to speak about some happy things. Oh my goodness. This happy book. things. <laughs> <laughs> no, because you know, I think that I think that when we think of of coming of ages and we think about the things that that black children who don't fit the mold have to go through, we you know, the story can often just be reduced to trauma and to pain. But what I think you've done so beautifully is that there are nuggets of joy in this book. There are nuggets of tenderness. There are nuggets of love. And I want to talk about the tenderness because I don't, I don't want the... I don't want us to miss the opportunity to talk about the tender ways in which you write about friendship and love and agreements in this book, you know, and there is a tenderness in, in Otto Lauren and Darren's relationship. So it starts off as a friendship and it develops into, into a relationship as, as Otto Lauren and becomes to become. And I want to talk about the tenderness with which you approached this story because they were both incredibly complex characters but their relationship is is so tender and it's so beautiful and i want to talk about that that tenderness ah 
I love this. Can I just say this? <laughs> Because obviously, you know, this is my favorite relationship in the book. Um, but I also think I, in thinking about tenderness and love and agreement, it's also like just this way there's a, there's a, a, a part earlier in the, in the book, right, where we know um, Bayo um, sort of violates Otto and, and, and Darren comes in. And then Darren speaks about this or confesses later on that I, I actually witnessed this ordeal and I saw and I was okay with it. And I thought that was one of the most beautiful moments in the book, right? For someone to say, I've seen you for who you are and people may think it is shameful, but I love you just the way that you are. Ah, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, this, this, this Darren as a character um, is um, I wanted to have someone do exactly that. Someone who has understood in some ways what it is to be different, even though there is difference is not so much, um, is a, it, it is a difference where um, as opposed to Otto Lorraine's difference, where Otto Lorraine's difference is, is uh, in some ways could be hidden. Um, Derry's difference is right, it's, it's, it's right out there. Derry is um, of mixed race. Um, Derry is, um, Derry's um, mother is white and Derry's father is black. And so Derry's experiences um, in some ways of, of, of standing out um, and also just being the, the person that he is um, actually, uh, and then Derry's, and then own life experiences, even at such a young age, and the things that Daring has been exposed to, um, just make Daring such a, a, a more rounded and, and, and more open-minded um, character. So, um, so, so, so then um, when they meet and when their friendship begins to blossom, I wanted this to be in, I wanted this to be a bound, you know, like um, that whole thing of, you know, coming of black children's coming of age stories being filled with trauma. I really wanted there to be something to counter all of that, something good, something tender, something kind. And um, that is where this friendship comes in. And I wanted to make it a transcending um, sort of friendship, the sort of friendship that, you know, you know, um, we'll, we'll, you know, the sort of friendship that we, we get once in a lifetime or maybe twice if we're lucky that transcends everything. You know, that friend who sees directly into your very heart of hearts so that um, it is not, so that it's more of a meeting of souls so that it does not even, or it, it, you know, what is on the outside becomes really completely irrelevant in many ways because your souls are so aligned to one another and so um so I, so that's how um that, that was how I was able to build in this tenderness and this love and this sense of agreement between them of you know um I I see all of you and I see all of you and I see all of you including the you that you are hiding or that you think is hidden even if that you even if you've not shown explicitly and directly shown me that you, I, you, I know, you know, I know, you know that I know that it's in there and that I see it. If all of this makes sense, because <laughs> it's a bit convoluted, 
But that is, uh, that is exactly that sense of agreement, that um, understanding that does not need explanation often, that understanding that there are things that you are not telling me, but that you know that I sort of on a level understand exists and I'm fine with it. And so when that incident happens um, with Bayo, um, when, when, when Bayo does that really terrible act, um, when, when Bayo um, actually does that violating act to, uh, to Otto and Derry actually is able to stand up and say, um, you know, and, and of course there is, you know, this is part of it is that Otto is initially terrified because, you know, every, everything that Otto has been told is if anyone knows about you, if anyone sees you, if anyone, you know, they're going to reject you, they're going to push you away, they're going to say what a monster you are, they're going to, so when that happens and Otto is terrified because, um, you know, there is that whole thing of, okay, well, um, I'm going to lose Daring too now, but Daring is not um, just anybody, you know. Daring is this person who is a soulmate friend to Otto. So Daring is able to um, just say, okay, you know, whatever you need to be okay, I'm here for you. I'll, you know, whatever you need to be okay is what I will do. But it doesn't even matter what I think or what, what my own um, opinion is of what should happen here. But I will, I'm, I'm, because I'm here with you, whatever you need to be okay, however you want this to go, so that you, Otto Loring, will be okay, is what I'm going to do. So that brings, you know, that, that, that wonderful tenderness is, um, is what I try to, to make sure, you know, really suffuses the entire book. One of my favorite parts of the book in all honesty, <laughs> is when uh, uh, Lori goes to her dad and is like, this is what you're going to do. Okay? You're going to give me money. You're going to sign this letter that says this. You're going to make that woman sign this letter that says this. I thought in many ways it was a, a, a sort of reclamation of power that she was robbed of throughout the book. And I really enjoyed that there was a moment or something where she was like, I'm going to use the power that I've created for myself. I've carved out this way. And this is what I'm going to demand from the world because the world has, has been taking and taking and taking. And it's time that I demand from the world what I want from the world. And I wanted to know your reflection on, on particularly writing that scene because we think she's 16 at the time, right? So she's not necessarily ultra emancipated from her parents financially, emotionally, and all of that. Yes. Oh, that is my favorite scene in the book. <laughs> um, I'm so glad that you like that. It, it really is my favorite scene in the book because um, I, that was, I, and, oh, I love, I love so much how you put it um, because it really is exactly that because there is, um, because, you know, one thing, there are echoes from the beginning of the book, you know, Laurie has wanted so much, so much to, to confront this man, to, this man who is so, who looms so large, who is so powerful, who, you know, who has caused so much um, um, chaos and distress in their lives, you know. And so for her to actually um, be able, and that was the growth that I wanted to show throughout the book, that she grows from being that person who is just terrified into this person who claims this power, who goes, 
I can go. And not only does she confront, you know, her father, she confronts him on his own home, in, 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 on his own turf, on her own terms. And um, so, you know, to be able, for her to be able to do that, you had to, you know, you had to see her grow into the person who could do that, even at this young age, because she's 16 going on 17, she's not, she's not yet emancipated, and she is, and that is part of what she's fighting for, that emancipation, you know, that, um, that, that whole, exactly how you put it, that the world has been taking and taking and taking, they've stolen my voice, they've stolen my personhood, they've stolen, you know, all of this, and now I want to reclaim it back. This is who I am. This is what I want, and you will give it to me because you can, because you owe it to me. And so, um, it is exactly that that reclamation of power, that reclamation of voice, even because you know th there is that whole idea of voice, and I, and and I do go into that quite a bit in the book, where um, you know being silenced, being 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 left voiceless, and so it's that reclamation of her voice, of her power. Um, and of, of, of really ent her entire being, because that is, that is one scene in which it's almost like everything in the book was built, well, yes, it was, it was building towards, in many ways, this moment where she stands up and says, this is who I am, this is who I intend to be, and whether you like it or not, you are going to support this person, and this person is going to go out into the world and achieve everything that she has dreamed of achieving. Ah, oh, sis. <laughs> okay, okay, let me gather myself. I want to talk about sibling relationships. And it's so funny because earlier today, I was talking to my brother, you know, and my brother and I have quite a big gap. And uh, so I don't have a sister. And it, it would have, it's always interesting to me to explore relationships between, between women so the relationship between Lauren and her sister is particularly interesting for me. And they, they are complex, right? It's like they're complex, but at the roots of it, there is such a deep love and respect and, and protection that they hold for each other. And I want to talk about writing that particular sibling relationship and what, and what that meant. Because that sibling relationship also demonstrates what redemption looks like, but also the power of forgiveness. I think there's a there's a part in the book where there there's been all of this conflict and also has been trashy and her sister's been trashy, everyone's been trashy. And <laughs> she then says they what is love without forgiveness? Hmm. Oh wow, yes. Yeah, I yeah, th th this, I wanted, this relationship. Yeah. Oh, go on. Yeah. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, I mean, Alma brought it up earlier, but I think like the sibling relationship really encapsulates what Gwendolyn Brooks wrote, right? So Gwendolyn Brooks says that we are each other's harvest, we are each other's business, we are each other's magnitude and bond. And I felt like that was encapsulated in the relationship. They were each other's harvests, right? And each other's business. I think there's a part in the book where Laurie, um, where uh, Laurie says, um, um, like loving worry is healing or this type of love is healing. And, I, and that stuck with me for such a long time. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, these, these sibling bonds are some of the... I mean, they're the people who knew you way back when, you know, you can't pull the wool over your siblings' eyes. They know, you know, they knew you when. They knew, you know, they know all your secrets. They know, they know, you know, they know where, 
well, the bodies are buried, so to speak. So, you know, there are the people who, who can interpret you, you know, there's, there's a sibling shorthand, you know, that is sort of what I call it. You know, you, there are some things that you never in this world have to explain to your sibling because, you know, you grew up in the same home. So there are some things your parents might say, uh, or, you know, you're, you're at a family gathering and your, your, your parents say something and you look at your sibling and you don't even both, you neither of you have to say a word. You've both had a whole conversation just, you know, by looking at each other because, you know, this is your background, this is your story. And, um, and, and siblings tend also, um, this is one thing, siblings tend to grow closer, um, I, I, at least I've found, as they grow older because then you rediscover each other again. And there is no one with whom you can reminisce about your childhood. There's no one else who was there. They were there. So this, this relationship between um, um, Otolori and Wura um, is one of such closeness because they are also twins. And as we all know, you know, the, the bond between twins is a different thing. Again, they're, they're sort of a reflection of each other while being separate and different people. And sometimes um, between, you know, that, that normal com competitive relationship between siblings, um, you know, you just have to look at, um, you know, how... Um, children compete for resources in, in a family, you know, um, you know, parents are always trying to make sure that, you know, good parents will always try to make sure that one child does not feel, you know, that um, they are, they are being that, that there's favoritism or that another child is more beloved or that it is, is getting more of the resources that are available to the family. So then when you put this into a sibling, into a twin relationship, then it's, it's like actually intensifying it. You know, it's, it's like it, it becomes even because they were born this, at this, on the same day, you know, um, they, they, you know and, and, and it's hard sometimes for twins to differentiate themselves, you know, to differentiate themselves from each other. A lot of twins resent that thing where people are, oh, the twins, you know, they, they're like, no, I'm me. No, he's, you know, he or she is themselves. So I wanted to show that complexity of that relationship between them especially in a situation where one of the scarce resources that they are in competition for is the love of their parents, which is something that should not um, happen, you know, in a response, in a, in a situation where the parents are actually responsibly raising their children. So, um, so in this case, you know, we are seeing that, um, you know, the, the, you know, the, their father does love Wura in his own um, very narrow and limited way. And, and of course, Mojisola, their mother, um, Wura is everything to, to her. Um, you know, it, and, and conversely, in the same way, Otto is, isn't anything to her, to, to, to her parents. So, the, so then this adds a, 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 another, another complex layer to their relationship. But this relationship is so close. They love each other so much that even despite all of these, um, all of these, things coming between them and the fact that um also Wura gets to be who Otto wants to be Otto just wants to live her life um as Lori in the same way that Wura is living her life entirely as Wura you know wear the dresses go to the parties you know enjoy enjoy everything have the boyfriends you know so but in all of these Wura gets to do express all of these desires all of these wants but Otto is completely limited and so is, is now pushed into a situation of 
um, of, of deeply coveting in many ways what Wura has. And jealousy in sibling relationships can be so terribly, um, so terribly destructive. And so, um, you know, the, the, uh, so then these are the things where, you know, you, you were at, we talked earlier about the complexity of the characters, how nobody is entirely good 100% and nobody is 100% bad. And this is the situation in which we see, um, in which we see the, if, if we like, Otto's shadow self, Otto, Otto Lori's self that isn't um, the best aspect um, of, of herself. Um, because, you know, um, the, because she... She starts. She covets all the things that um, Wura has, and this puts them in a situation where they both do not behave at their best, and where they both um, and and where um, a, a, a man, a young man, comes into their lives, into both of them's lives, um, who then becomes a catalyst in many ways for them to um, for, to to try to 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 come and drive between them that wedge that all of the other things that happened previously did not succeed in, in, in creating. So it is this particular situation that involves a young man that, you know, ends up being the situation that creates, um, the, the, uh, you know, in which they show their worst, in which their worst selves emerge. And then when their worst selves have emerged, how do they find their way back to each other? How do they... Uh, despite having done things to each other that are so uh, un unforgivable almost, how do they come to a place of you matter more to me than anything in this world? You know, you, you're, you're, you're my business, you know, you're, you're everything, you're my harvest. How do I come back to you? How do we come back to each other? I want to say thank you for writing the ending in the way that you did. I don't think my heart could have taken any other ending. Like I would have <laughs> literally wept if like it didn't end the way that it did because there was so much suffering and violence in this book that I was like, is there a break? You know, do we as queer people, as trans people, as intersex people ever get a break and ever get a happy ending, right? Often a soft landing because auto throughout the book does not have many soft landings. And I think it would be remiss of us to end the podcast without talking about Mr. D. Ah, Mr. D, Mr. D. Oh, Mr. D. <laughs> One of the few men in the book who were not problematic, who were just soft and vulnerable. Oh, Mr. D. And I, I, I have a question about whether Mr. D's own life experiences, and I'm going to say this, you know, as a, a his own queerness is yeah. the reason why he in many ways was like, I don't want a child to suffer the same fate as a lover of mine may have before. So I'm going to do mm. everything in my power to know that this person knows that it's okay to be who they are and to exist uh, in their fullness. I wanted to know that. I wanted to know like wh whether if Mr. D was not necessarily queer, whether it would have been different. You know, ah, yeah, that is, oh, wow, yeah. Wait, let me start from, do queer people ever get a soft landing, get a break, 
I wanted that so very much to happen in this book. I know I'm like you. My heart could not have, even I writing it, my, my heart could not have taken any other ending. It just could not be any other way. It had to be happy. It had to be good. All of, and, and all of, all of everything that Otto Loring experienced had to be, you know, towards a becoming, towards a better ending, towards a better place, towards a, a joyful life, towards a freedom. And I wanted that to be what the book was about. That sometimes, you know, in life doesn't hand you the best, um, you know, life doesn't always hand us the best, um, the, the easiest cards. But of course, you know, if you play it with, you know, wholeheartedly and with your best, you know, you, in, your, in the best possible way you can, you know, whether, you know, coming of age, even whether you're, you know, coming of age in a country and you're genderqueer in a country where it is really hard, sometimes if you are able to look for your allies and, you know, find your allies and, and believe in yourself and strive, you can be okay. You can be fine. You can have a great life. You can have it all. So I wanted very much for, um, for this book to end on that, on that note. And so Mr. D, I love him so much. He, his own queerness, yes. Um, I mean, he's Ghanaian. And we know what's been happening recently, um, um, you know, just um, keeping up with the news in Ghana and, and, and then just how the oppression of queer people has become um, once again rampant in Ghana. And how just desperately sad that is in that, that in this day and age, we cannot just seem to move past some such, such um, terrible behaviors and just the hope that it's, things are going to change because people are not keeping quiet. People are fighting back. And this is so important. And so Mr. D, uh, Mr. D's own, in a way, he's also a displaced person. And yes, in his, in, and, and his queerness is what in some ways that what has displaced him and brought and made him some and brought him um, in some ways to Nigeria. And it's, and it's, of co- and, and of course, because of the time and the way um, the culture is, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not overt. Um, so, and he had his own um, experience and he was, when he was young, that caused him to be silenced, that traumatized him. And so, um, so, and so he, he, his, you know, family happens in different ways and he, he looks for his family, you know, you know, he's looking for the helpers, he's looking out for those young men, those young children, well, young people, I should say, who he knows um, possibly could be in the similar kind of situations and dangers that he faced. And he is quietly trying to be there to help them, to to be a guardian, to, 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 to guide them, to support them, you know, in all the ways that he can, you know, whether in, in, in his own, in, you know, given his own limited power in a powerful country, in a country where he is teaching in a school where, you know, there, where, where there are the children of the rich and the powerful, you know, so, um, so it, there is that wonderful sweetness and kindness and tenderness in him. And, but he's also had to develop a certain toughness um, in order to survive. And he tries to inculcate that particular toughness that will help, you know, the young people that he encounters 
you know, so that they too can survive and not just survive so that they can thrive and be their whole selves. So there are all these beautiful, tender moments, all these um, loving, kind um, moments of finding family, of creating family, of, you know, finding allies and helpers um, in the book as well. And yeah, Mr. D is, is, is such a marvelous character that I, I, I mean, I wish... I wish I had a Mr. D in my life. I think we all deserve a Mr. D in our lives. <laughs> I'm going to be a little naughty, right? And I'm going to... Oh. <laughs> I'm going to... Um, I, I'm always curious when I read people's acknowledgements, right? Um, and I want to speak um, about this sweet French boy who stopped to help that exhausted Nigerian student. <laughs> Carrying her moving boxes to the dorm room many moons ago. Rita, I married him. Because um, I'm curious about that. I'm curious about, like, you know, we speak a lot about, about displacement and we also speak about foreignness when we, thinking, when we think about Mr. D and you coming from Nigeria and going to the UK and that sort of, like, um, move and what that did and how love sort of cushioned you um, and, and gave you the space um, to just have soft landing. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Oh, yeah. So love definitely. Yeah. The, oh, my goodness. Where do I unpack this? <laughs> um, <laughs> I can see. I can even feel your blushing. <laughs> <laughs> so beautiful to hear, right? It's so beautiful to hear because it, it comes from such a deep place as well. Love to hear mm. it. Thank you. Yes. Um, so my husband, um, he, I met him in university in the UK and um, we were both students at the time. And yes, I was moving. I was, it was a very, um, it was actually a bit of a, 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 a stressful time in my life. I was moving from one dorm to another. And because um, I had to work, um, in order to um, survive as a student, because my, my dad, my father was helping me a little, but I basically had to um, work every, basically I was working as, as a student, I was working during the holidays, during whether it was um, the Christmas holidays or, or the summer holidays, I was constantly working. So while being a student, I was working all the time. And so I just had a long, hard day at work and I needed to move my boxes as well because I had to quit the dorm room that day. And it was all so stressful. And so it was later in the evening, I was rushing to grab these boxes and rushing to get back to my room and all of that. And the boxes were actually falling um, because I was so stressed. And this young man just said, can I help you carry them? And I was like, oh, sure, thank you. And he carried them to my room. And, uh, you know, at the, we're at the door and I said, okay, you can leave them here. I said, no, 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 I'll carry them all the way upstairs for you. Carried them upstairs. And, and then he just stood there and was chatting like we'd known each other forever. He just said, talking. I was like, oh, okay. I was chatting with him. And, um, and so the, I, and then eventually, he, you know, I said, would you like a drink? I, I offered him some juice. And then after that, he, he left. And then the next day, guess who showed up at my door? <laughs> and then the next day. And so this was how our story began. And my husband is, um, he's, he's, he's French, he's white, and I'm Nigerian, I'm black. So you can imagine that, um, the, the, you know, the, this was a French white boy in, in the UK and this um, Nigerian black girl, in, and we met in the UK. And so um, 
our story is long and deep and um, it's been many years. We've been married 20 something years and uh, and it's it's and and we've we've moved, you know, we moved around in the north of England, and then we moved to the U.S. And coming to the U.S. was such a, a shock. I will not lie. This was, it was. I mean, America is such a different country again from anything that I'd ever experienced. And so, um, I had to now start figuring out who I was over here, and who I wanted to be. And so many things were challenged, like. Um, when we first got here, I wasn't allowed to work. So I had to figure out, I had to go back to school because that was the only thing I could do. And um, so in all of this, he's been, um, you know, he's been my constant. And we've been each other's constant. And I think in many, in some ways, um, writing Daring was very much informed by, in some ways, by um, the man that he is. To me, I'm like, yes, 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 and oh, and it. I felt it because Darren felt so like real, you know. Like I, I think writing about love in the way that you did did come from a deep place, and so that's why I wanted to bring it up because I just felt that you wrote it from this place that you know of. Ooh. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, he, he, yes, very much in many, many ways, you know, that, that constancy, that calmness in the face of things, that ability to just um, be there and say, okay, what, what, you know, reason out, you know, where I would flail and panic and run around like, you know, my hair was on fire. He would just go, okay, um, this, that, and that is the situation here you are. What shall we do? I am here. You know, that always, that, that, and, and then he's smart. Oh, he's so smart. I mean, I, I, I fell in love with his mind um, as much as anything else. So, yeah, now you've made me talk a whole lot about myself. <laughs> but yes. Buki, <laughs> thank you so story. much. Thank you so much for... This is such a beautiful note to, to end it on, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> just the love. I'm like, I'm like in love. I'm in love with love right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, thank you so much um, for uh, the book. I wanted to know if it's possible to just read the first page of An Ordinary Wonder for anyone who's listening, um, just so that they um, can, you know, enter the book. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, I will be happy to. Um, so um, I'm going to read from the preface, there's a slight preface at the beginning. And then, um, and then, um, and that preface is actually a Yoruba poem that is also a song. And then I'm going to read the first page. And the poem is, hey, child of the silver rivers, stay, offspring of the morning light, be well, daughter who dances to the beat of the waves. And in Yoruba, that song is, hey, hey, amomi mole, Duro amolo uromo pele uomalu bejo. Proverb: A person who sells eggs oh. should not start a fight in the market. My name is Otoloring. I've been called monster. Within dark valleys of flesh, I defy the given. A snake curled in upon itself, two in one mythical and shunned. 
Yet in that magical place between worlds, in the realm where the great mother gives milk to her offspring, I become like a goddess. There in words unspoken, my voice is heard. I often wish I could take Wura, my sister, with me to visit that place where I truly come alive, but I cannot because Wura is normal, so it would be death. Wura and I are twins. Like all other Yoruba twins that have ever been born, we should be called Taiwo and Kende, the one who came first and the one who lagged behind. Even in this, our natural names, our parents kept us apart. Otoloring, one who walks a different path, and Wuraola, a wealth of gold. Wura is everything to our mother, who will never have any other children because she is the woman who birthed the unspeakable. And my father has no desire to sire any more monsters. Here in Nigeria, the road ends at my secret. But America, they say, is the land where wonders are created and the wondrous is made ordinary. Now that I have wedged one foot onto that path, I am determined to make it all the way. Because if I do, perhaps I too can become an ordinary wonder. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're part of the This is so amazing. I think we just really want to thank you for your generosity and thank you for having just been so kind and so open, you know, um, not only in in this podcast, but in writing this book. And there are just no words for, I think, what this book has done. I I did say that this has been one of my favorite books um, of the year, and I completely understand why it is an evening standard best debut for 2021. So congratulations on the amazing work that you've done and thank you thank you and we just want to give you your flowers and we really look forward to so much more coming out of you oh thank you so much i echo alma's sentiments i think that an ordinary wonder is just like wow man um wow i think i will return to it just to (laughs) to think about the love and just the tenderness that we owe to ourselves and the tenderness that we can create in the world so thank you really much bookie for writing such a and puttable down book. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an utter joy and a pleasure to talk with you both. This has been really just one of the most amazing experiences that I have had since my book was published. You have been amazing and generous and your love for my book has been so evident and you are wonderful people. And I very much love the way that you have, you have understood an ordinary wonder. And yeah, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. <laughs> Chikinators, thank you so much for joining us once again on this episode. Um, if you would like an ordinary wonder, please pop us an email at info um, at chikinators.co.za or you can also visit our website, www.chikinators.co.za forward slash shop. Um, And yes, until next time.